Hey, welcome to Tape to Tape, powered by the new Ram 1500 Sport, built exclusively for Canadians. I'm Ryan Dixon. I'm a writer for Sportsnet.ca. Joining me on the other line, as always, Sportsnet's NHL editor, Rory Boylan. Got my first round of golf in the other weekend, Ryan. Yeah, didn't play too well. Went straight to the first tee, did not go to a driving range. Yeah, you can expect how that went. (laughs) Well, still good to get out there. I did go to a driving range. I haven't been on the course, but uh, I did hit a bucket of balls with our our mutual pal and... I guess we call him one-time producer, Amal Delich. Uh, Amal oh, yeah. has been swamped putting out all kinds of other podcasts during uh, this uh, COVID force break, which, of course, you should be checking out on sportsnet.ca. Um, but I had a good catch-up with him, smack some balls. I do find there's a phenomenon, whether at the range or on the course, where I swear to God I golf a little better at the beginning of the yes. season, and then it goes yes. away, but I don't know why. Maybe it's... The golf gods trying to lure me in to say, yes, yes, you can play this sport before they pull the rug out. But I like I left the range being like, I hit the ball pretty well. But I just know if I went three more times, it'd be like, no, 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 I'm, I'm back to what I usually am. I'm, I'm convinced it has something to do with the fact that you haven't had time to get inside your own head. You know, at the yeah, end sure. of the year, you're thinking about all the little changes to your swing that you've made or what you've thought about your swing through the year. But at the first time, it's just you're kind of out there winging it. You're loose and you're just out there to have fun. Ah, we're golfing again. This is great. <laughs> you haven't had time yeah. to overthink it. So maybe that's a factor. <laughs> well, here's what we're thinking about today. We are going to touch on the latest news around the NHL as uh, the league enters phase two of a plan to come back. And we've seen actual NHL players on the ice, albeit in uh, small groups. We're also going to discuss a piece Rory has going up on sportsnet.ca on Friday where it is award season and he's picking an MVP for each team. And then in block two, we're going to chat a little bit about uh, the Canadian teams and ask one big picture pressing question for each of those seven squads. Before we get there, though, let's just dive into... Uh, the latest news, uh, Rory, what do you make of the developments we've seen this week? We, we have seen, as I said, players back on the ice in, you know, groups of five or six guys. Um, I mean, we're at least creeping still slowly toward a world where we see two full teams on an NHL surface and, uh, playing an actual game. Yeah. I mean, this is the, the first step, right? And it's, um, entirely optional The players aren't are required to come back and, and do these. This is not training camp. Like you said, it's just small groups, no more than six skaters coaches for the team. Aren't even allowed to be a part of it or anything like that. Um, I believe 16 of the NHL arenas are open for this, this week. Um, a couple more will open up next week. And it really just depends on a, are you set up for testing and and all the requirements that the NHL needs you to meet to open and B, do you have players still in your area that need the ice to get back out on? You know, there's a couple of places where there's two or three guys that are still in town and they either have their own facility or they're not wanting to go back to the rink yet. So they're not opening an arena in those cities. Um, Slowly, this will start to get more and more, you know, we know training camps won't open before July 10th at the earliest. We'll see if that gets pushed back or, or not. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is a positive step, right? The guys are 
partially back on the ice in North America. And, you know, we've come a long way from mid-March when this whole thing was put on pause and any positive development I think we'll take. Um, and yeah, like I said, it's still going to be a month or more before we go on to the next step. But I, th- I think this is what we're looking for. Just anything positive right now. So there does seem to be, I mean, one of the major questions has been where will these two hub cities be? The sense has been all along that ideally the NHL would like one in Canada, but border restrictions, which we don't see lifting anytime soon, um, will or could play a role there. Maybe the league gets an exception. My question is this, has it ever mattered less to hold a hockey event in Canada? Because it's not like people can come to this thing anyways. It's not like a World Cup where you say, well, it's a no-brainer to put it in Canada or having the World Junior here every three times. No one is going to watch less hockey on TV if the empty arena the, the players are playing in is in the middle of the United States as opposed to somewhere in Alberta. Like, to some degree, I just wonder why they don't drop the idea if it just wouldn't make it simpler to say well it's going to be in two spots in the u.s yeah um it i mean the bottom line is it doesn't really matter where it goes you're not going to be at the arena watching these games um fans aren't going to be able to interact with the players who are in town or anything like that if they are something's gone terribly wrong yeah (laughs) and uh, you're not in a bubble anymore yeah um i would even be surprised like if the rink had the local team's logo in the in the middle of it. You know, maybe it's an NHL logo or something. Like that. I, that, be... I had the exact same thought <laughs> yeah. too. That it, I guess it'll be, yeah, a big. Uh, it'll be like when Mark Shifley uh, uh, was drafted by the Jets before they had a jersey. <laughs> right. Exactly. You know? Exactly it. Um, and you know, so we get these little bits and pieces of news. The latest report was that it was expected the border would remain closed between the U.S. and Canada for non-essential travel through July. Um, and that has a lot of people wondering what that means for, uh, you know, the potential for a Canadian city to be a hub city for the NHL's return. And I don't really think it means anything one way or the other, because whether it's the travel restriction or a 14-day quarantine, all along, you were going to need some kind of federal government um, intervention here uh, that would allow the NHL to get around some of those rules. Um, and this just means that if the NHL is going to be able to play in Canada, again, you're probably going to need the, the federal government to stand in and, and allow them to to travel their people across for this um, and, and have that kind of an exemption. Um, so I don't necessarily me- think this means the end of it, um, but certainly there's still some work to be done with the Canadian government. But like, like, like I said, it comes down to the fact that fans, probably most media, not going to even be involved in this anyway. The Stanley Cup, if it gets awarded, is going to be done in front of an empty arena. Um, the more important thing right now is how is this going to be presented on TV? Because that's how everybody is going to be consuming this. It really doesn't matter where it's being held. We just got to figure out where the safest places are, where the bubble can be maintained. Um, because the last thing that we would want is for this to start up and then we get, um, you know, a cluster of cases inside the bubble and you've got to pause or cancel the season again. So the most important thing is not, you know, appeasing fans. Oh, we've got to have somewhere in Canada or we've got to have it in Toronto or, or wherever. Just find the place that is the safest, that makes the most sense to give us the best chance to start and then finish this thing. 
So the Nathan McKinnon or Leon Dreisaitl MVP debate is going to be raging a bit for the next few days as um, ballots are cast. I believe they're due Monday. I better check because I have one um, for <laughs> the NHL awards. We've talked a little bit about that on this pod. I think we at last check, we both are McKinnon guys. Um, yep. I'm probably going to go down the rabbit hole when it comes to that part of the uh, the ballot, um, and there's some close ones this year, but we'll get to that later. Uh, maybe maybe next week uh, we can have a little awards talk and revisit that a little bit, but you are putting together a piece where you've picked an MVP for each team. A lot of them are slam dunks. I'm curious about some of the surprises, though. Were there some guys that when you started digging into it, you thought, you know what, I think this is the most valuable player for this team? Yeah, for sure. Um you know, one, okay, I have to start here because I guess I always have to start here, but legitimately the Florida Panthers, you know, you always just think Alexander Barkov is the guy, right? He's your MVP, no no matter what almost. And he had another pretty good year this year. He's, you know, the two-way force. He's the best all-around player that they have. But Jonathan Huberto was absolutely yeah. outstanding this year. I, I didn't realize how far ahead of Barkov he was in points. He's got a 16-point lead on him. Um, with just three more games played, leads the team in goals and assists. Um, he just has completely taken his game to another level here in the last couple of years. You know, last year he got 92 points. I think Markov was the MVP of, of that team last year. But this year, I think he started to separate himself enough uh, on the offensive side of the puck that um, that was a closer call than I was expecting, but I ended up going with Huberto. And, um, you know, another one... I wasn't really sure where I was going to land on this. I thought, you know, maybe Seth Jones. Um, but when I was looking at it, you know, Columbus's MVP, it, it's hard not to say Elvis Merzlikens, which is kind of surprising because he's also a rookie. And this is kind of the tough part, right? Do you give more weight to a guy who's played all of or almost all of the season? Or can you give it to a guy like Merzlikens who's been in a tandem, played less than 40 games, but has been absolutely stellar and has completely changed um, the outlook for that team. I mean, if you get if you get a hot Elvis Merzlikens in a playoff series, who who knows? You know, maybe playoff inexperience works in a in a guy like that's favor. Um, so that one was, was a little bit closer. And, and then my main takeaway from that, actually, when I came away with maybe Merzlikens should be the MVP of the Blue Jackets this year is. As much as I love Adam Fox and what he did this year, really drove the point home that maybe we should be talking about Merz Lickens more in the Calder debate, not as a winner. I think it's a pretty clear two-horse race, but as that third guy who's going to be in 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 the finalist uh, mention yep. there, I think he deserves more credit for that. Um, and then two, I struggled a little bit on Vancouver and Washington. I mean, Washington, John Carlson stands out for, in so many ways this year. You know, he's going to be one or two in the Norris, scored a ton of points. Um, his start was absolutely incredible. But again, you've got Alex Ovechkin winning, um, tying for another Rocket Richard. You know, where does the weight on that one go? How do you figure this out? Because Carlson isn't the best, you know, defensive player, but neither is Alex Ovechkin yeah, on the true. forward, right? So there's a lot of, I wasn't really sure. I'm, And again, this piece isn't going up till Friday. I'm not really sure where I'm going to land. Right now I've got Carlson, but I'm really, really torn uh, between those two. And for Vancouver, 
Um, you know, Elias Pettersson, JT Miller, the, the two of those guys together especially have just been outstanding. You know, Miller, the pickup there was was huge for that team. And so some consideration there and, and the fact that Pettersson has helped make him uh, the point getter that he's been this year, he deserves some credit. But Jacob Markstrom was... Uh, incredible for them. He missed some time when his dad passed away, came back and was great. Then he was injured just before the pause. So again, you've got to factor in the guy didn't play the full season. He missed some time here and there. Did he play enough to, to warrant consideration or warrant the top spot for the MVP on that team? Ultimately, I'm going with Markstrom um, because he, without him this year, if you're going with Thatcher Demko, I don't think Vancouver is in the same spot. I think they're much closer to, you know, Montreal or Chicago, even right at the bottom of this 24 team thing. Um, so I think the way Markstrom has kind of come together, you know, for years, he was the goalie of the future for the Panthers and it never worked out. And for a long time, it looked like it really wasn't going to work out for him as an NHL starter. Um, but he has absolutely turned it on for the Canucks in the last two years here or so. And I think this year especially took a step with the team um, that I think warrants him being Vancouver's MVP. But again, it's a tough, tough discussion between those three guys. Well, I mean, I would say there's been times where he's been on the fringe of the actual Hart Trophy yep. conversation. So, yep, yeah. for sure. That's just um, it. And then, but again, he fell off of that when he was missing games. So, you know, that this is the... How much weight do you put on on games played versus um, you know what they actually gave the team in the games that they did play? Well, it'll be a uh, big question for the Vancouver Canucks. Can they ink the UFA to be to a new deal when uh, whenever the season expires and Markstrom becomes a free agent? Great segue to what we'll be talking about when we come back on the other side of the break. Who knows? Rory did the Vancouver question. That could actually be it. I don't even know. Maybe we're going to address that in the other side here, but we're going to zoom out and ask some big picture questions, pressing questions for all seven of the Canadian teams. So stick around. Lots more to come on tape to tape. Hey, welcome back to Tape to Tape. All right, Rory, we might as well start with you. We left the the uh, listeners hanging there. We're going to do one question for each of the seven Canadian teams. I did the Eastern teams plus Winnipeg. You did Vancouver, Edmonton, Calgary. Is signing Jacob Markstrom the big question? Will they, will they not be able to for Vancouver, or did you come up with something else? I came up with something else. I mean, that that is a huge question for this team when the offseason hits, right? Um, you know, whether or not they're able to keep Markstrom, can they get somebody else to replace him? That's going to be something in the offseason that we're going to have to follow for them for sure. Um, but my question came up because it's going to have to be answered sooner. Um, and it was, it, will playoff inexperience be a factor for this team? You know, you look at Quinn Hughes, Elias Pettersson, Brock Besser, Adam Gaudet, Jake Vertanen, Thatcher Demko, Bo Horvat, Troy Stetcher, Josh Levo, Jacob Markstrom, all of those guys have a combined zero playoff games in their career. Those are some um, you know, really important players to what this team has done this year. 
you know, is it is it a good thing that you're going in without knowing what the playoffs are, or is it a bad thing knowing that you're going up against a team that in Minnesota that hasn't won anything, but there's a lot of experience on that roster. Um, you know, the, the thing with Minnesota is that for about a solid two months before the pause, they were the sixth or seventh best team in the league in, in terms of point percentage. Like they were turning a corner, they were turning it on here. Now, momentum is probably out the window um, whenever we return. Everybody's kind of starting from scratch again in a lot of ways. But you wonder how much really of that, like, was that a team finding itself? They had had a, had a coaching change. So there's had time for that to settle and some communication is set in there. You know, is, is any of that transferable? Because if it is, Minnesota might be this team that's really coming in on a high. And Vancouver is a team that is you know, happy to be there, hopeful to have an impact, but really unsure of what they are yet because they're certainly not at their peak. They're still building towards something. So a lot, again, a lot of these guys who are going to have to be difference makers for them in a series against the wild have no playoff experience. So is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? I I think the top question Vancouver is going to have to face when they get back on the ice is will playoff inexperience be a factor against the Minnesota wild? All right, well, we'll, maybe we'll ping pong back and forth from coast to coast and go uh, all the way to the uh, easternmost team in the uh, NHL, the Montreal Canadiens. I mean, there's certainly uh, some pressing questions in terms of, you know, if you're looking at just the five-game series they will presumably have with the Pittsburgh Penguins. But I went a little more 30,000-foot view with my teams and with the Canadiens. I still think the biggest question is, are we judging Mark Bergevin on playoffs or progress? I mean, I'll use the advanced stats analogy and, you know, on a very basic rudimentary level, advanced stats are there to tell us, you know, even if a guy hasn't scored a goal in 10 games, we can look at all these other metrics and determine, well, is this player still by and large playing well and are things about to change? I mean, the Canadians are just kind of the team version of that. I would think in that they could not make the playoffs next year. They were obviously not going to make the normal playoffs if we were in a regular, regular season this year. Um, but you could still argue they're they're trending in the right direction. If certain young players are taking a step, is that enough for Mark Bergevin to keep his job, to keep doing this retool, or is it just a matter of, well, if you're not in the playoffs, that's it, you're out. Um, And I mean, I think the sort of, the thing that dovetails with that is the prospect conversation about, is there a a true A-plus prospect from a mix of very nice prospects? But when you look at the people they have, um, you know, the upside for them all seems to be maybe uh, a second line uh, center like a Kotkinami. I mean, Nick Suzuki looks great, but he's not, you know, no one is that clear stud number one center or or number one defenseman. So I think there's a, a conversation to be had about, you know, what is the the collective ceiling, I guess, for some of these prospects. And I mean, would they trade one? Because it's, it's, I mean, we've touched on it before, but for years, the story there was the dearth of talent either on the team or uh, the fact there was none in the system up the middle. And I keep, I look at the guys they have who would seem to be best suited to playing center. 
Max Domi, Philip Deneau, Nick Suzuki, Jesperi Kotkiniemi, and Ryan Paling. And I understand uh, to some degree all of those guys, I think maybe everyone except Deneau, has played at least a little bit on the wing, but it seems like those five guys are best suited to playing up the middle. And I just don't really, you know, you can do the math. There's there's only four spots. And even at that, which one of those guys is going to be a fourth line center, you know? So I don't know. I, I do wonder if there's a bold move to be made by Mark Bergevin the offseason where, I mean, I, I couldn't, I certainly couldn't see a Suzuki or even caught Kaniami, but I mean, Max Domi, who is an RFA, certainly his name has come up as a, a young player who would attract some interest. Maybe even Ryan Paling, if it's, you know, for a move for somebody like Matt Dumba or somebody along those lines. So um, I, I still think the big question here is, like I said, uh, what's Mark Bergevin being judged on? Whether he's moving this team forward or whether they're clearing the bar and getting into the playoffs. I think it's fascinating. Like, as long as you think he's still building something positive, I don't know why you would move on from him if that yeah. just doesn't mean you're not making the playoffs yet. As long as you're still believing that you're heading in the right direction and you are making gains instead of subtractions, um, you know, I, I think I think he's done an underrated, yeah, underratedly good job there. Um, the past so couple of years, they've yeah done that retool. Um, okay, so my next team, I'll go back to the Oilers and. There's there's kind of a long-term and a short-term way to look at this question. Uh, who will play on Connor McDavid's wing? Like, how do you, in the, in the long-term, how does Ken Holland get the player or two players who are going to be, you know, McDavid's wingers? Those are the guys, that's what they're brought in to do, and that's who he's playing with all the time. You know, we seem to have found... Drysidle's wingers, you know, he's been paired up there with um, Yamamoto and, and Ryan Nugent Hopkins, and they were doing really well together. And those are two highly skilled players. McDavid just kind of been with whoever else is is around and kind of playing well at the time, right? Like when Drysidle moved to to center, he no longer had that elite player. He's been paired with James Neal, who started just outstanding this season and then fell off a cliff. Um, Zach Cassian, he's been good in spurts, but again, you know, he, he goes cold and now you've got a slow plotting winger with not a lot of offensive upside on, on there playing with McDavid. And, you know, they brought in Andreas Athanasiu from Detroit to keep up with McDavid in, in just the speed department. And maybe he's got some offensive upside there that hasn't fully been tapped. And, you know, in the little bit that we saw before the season pause, he didn't really click with this team. And there's a question of, you know, do they sign him again or not? I, I think they will. I think he deserves more of a chance than that. But, but we'll see. Um, so there's a there's a two part. Like, how do you get to the point? Yes, McDavid can carry anybody on his line. Everybody knows that he's the best player in the world right now. There's no argument there really. But to make Edmonton the best team it can possibly be, it can't just be anybody riding shotgun with McDavid. You need to have skill players to really, you know, become consistent Stanley Cup contenders over and over again. That's the hard part. How do you get to there? And then in the short term, this is the question when you get back. Who's playing with McDavid when you're in the playoffs? We know probably who's playing with Drysaddle, as I mentioned, but, you know, does Neil get another shot with McDavid because he's... He's fresh again. And this is this going to be a, a repeat of the start of the season? Can you find that magic again? Does Athanasiu deserve another look there? Does Cassian deserve another look there? Because he has had some success in the playoffs on McDavid's wing before. And then how long is the leash on any of this? You're not getting thrown back in to try any of these things 
you know, with regular season games, you're going right back into the playoffs into a best yeah. of five to try these things. And so how are you going to find that? And I think, I think it's going to be really interesting to find out who they end up settling on to, to ride shotgun with McDavid on that first line in the playoffs. Let me ask you something as a lead into my next team. Does it blow your mind that it was basically three years ago exactly that the Ottawa Senators were one goal away from advancing to the Stanley Cup final? Because to me, that feels like something that happened in 2008. Three years. Three Three years years ago, they were in an overtime Game 7 of the East Final with the Pittsburgh Penguins. And since then, they've just become... The NHL's great paradox, which leads me to my big picture question for the Sens. Basically, is there any hope? I mean, maybe I'm just guilty of living in the moment here because with news coming out that yet again, there's something going on at the top with ownership with Eugene Melnick and, um, you know, the Sens, the Ottawa Senators Foundation and the team itself. Uh, are splitting ways it just reinforces the idea that ottawa has if you're an ottawa fan you're just sitting there feeling like i'm in the worst possible situation because i have no faith in the owner right and there is a really intriguing young team being put together here but at this point it's it's just hard to have faith if you're a fan that it will be allowed to blossom and this is the one situation in sports where how do you get out from under it right it's not like a coach or gm that is going to come to the end of the line you know often in fairly short order if they're not doing their job but what do you do when the source of your anguish is the guy who owns the team yeah um you know, I think the happiest ending for most Senators fans is that a new owner comes in, right, um, and kind of settles this. It's it's wild. Like th- this should be a for a rebuilding team a generally very positive season. Yeah. Um, you know, you're looking at a very decent possibility of having the first two picks in the in the draft, top two in the top three, two in the top four, whatever it is. You're gonna have two really really high picks. You've got um, an AHL team that was coming into its own. Um, some young players that were playing just outstanding there, going to make a, a name for themselves, going to make a way onto the roster next year. Um, and everything is just kind of overshadowed by all the bad news, that bad stories that are coming out of, out of ownership. And the latest being the separation from the Sens Foundation, which is just, uh, I mean, how a team and its charitable foundation break apart is is mind-blowing it's me. one of those things that when you're like oh that can even happen i didn't even yeah, know that. exactly i'm like wait don't they aren't they the same thing and then oh, yeah. Okay, yeah now i get it yeah okay um but yeah it's that's the mind-blowing thing I, I think yeah i mean you can have a lot of positivity that you know in probably two or three years before a lot of these guys come up for big contracts you could have a pretty exciting team um whether or not they you know, get to the top of the league or not remains to be seen, but it is a young man's league. It's a league about quickness and, and, and cheapness, cheap contracts and everything like that too. So if you can put this together, you might be pretty competitive very quickly. Um, as long as you can also find the goalie to go along with this, which is, um, still hanging out there. 
Um, but yeah, in the backdrop of all of this, you're always going to be wondering, well, when when is it going to run out? When are we not going to be able to afford these guys anymore? And we're going to have to trade them and do this all over again. Is this just going to be a vicious cycle? I don't think anybody is going to be really happy about the long-term future with that team until there's more stability um, from ownership, for sure. It's sad. It's really sad. Well, it is. I mean, um, yeah, it's just too bad that the positivity can't be the headline there, but it's just always going to come with the asterisks, I think. Okay, what do you got for the Flames? So for the Flames, again, a little a little short term, but it could bleed into some summer stuff is uh, when they get back. I wonder how long David Riddick's leash is uh, to be the starter in net. Uh, I would be shocked if he wasn't the game one starter when they return to the playoffs. Uh, but Cam Talbot was the better of the two for quite a long stretch before the pause. Um, and... You know, it looked like Talbot maybe was going to possibly have a chance to overtake Riddick. And now, because they weren't able to finish those games, he's not going to be able to solidify that. So they probably go back to the de facto number one when the puck drops, unless something happens in in the short training camp. Yeah. Uh, And you got to remember, too, like they play Winnipeg, and Winnipeg is a really good offensive team that can take it to you. And so, you know, they could get on Riddick and the Flames very quickly. And if they get up 3 nothing in game one in the first period or whatever, I would imagine you go to Talbot. Do you then, you know, is Talbot now your guy that you ride through the rest of this? Talbot's a UFA. Riddick is signed next year. So, you know, you've got him. Talbot's probably going to find another job somewhere else uh, in a tandem, but he's he's kind of had that bounce back. He deserves a look in the playoffs. But again, Riddick is Calgary's guy right now. So it's going to be really interesting to just see how long that leash is. When do they turn to Talbot? What has to happen for them to do that? And then what does that mean for the summer? If, if you leave the playoffs and Talbot has been your starter, you know, does that mean that you have to bring him back? Does that mean that... Um, if he doesn't return, now you've got to find somebody else who not only can play in a tandem with Riddick, but someone that you are pretty sure can take the number one job if if Riddick is not the guy uh, to move forward with beyond next season. So really interesting situation in, in the net for Calgary, and it's going to be fascinating to see play out. It definitely felt like it was going to be a hot hand situation, right? Like whoever had shown the best, the pat, you know, the last 10 games of the season, if things had wound up the you know the normal way, that's probably who was going to get the game one start. Yeah, for sure. And it's just you know because you don't have those games, you know, and all you're going to get is a short training camp and yeah. maybe a couple of exhibition games that aren't going to be gonna, meaningful. Yeah, nothing. Yeah, that that's could not going to change your mind. mind. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that just probably ends up back at Riddick, and then and then what? I don't know. So coincidentally, my last two are are kind of similar. The Leafs and the Jets. I can I can kind of lump them together here. And and again, it is uh it's sort of a, a short term, long term thing. But I mean, the big questions with with each team really revolve around the defense. And with with the Leafs, we'll get to the the Jets. But with the Leafs, I do wonder like could the defense problems long-term be resolved internally like let me throw this at you if the lease were to come back next year and start the season with morgan riley and travis dermott on the top pair jake muzzin and uh timothy liljegren on the second pair and rasmus sundin and justin hall on the third pair 
So you've got two lefties, probably have Dermot playing the right side with Morgan Riley, and then everything else is a righty-lefty split. I mean, the reality is you can't bank on that. Like, there's too much uncertainty to, to go into a season where you'll be trying to win the Stanley Cup, hoping that works out. But if you just look on it case by case, like, you know, Dermot will be going into his fourth year. Has he shown enough to make you believe he can be a pretty good NHL defenseman who could be the second best guy on a, a top pair? Yeah, maybe. Lil Ugrin obviously took a step forward in the AHL. He's a right shot guy who could be paired with a veteran like Muzzin, who would then be on his natural side. That seems like that could work. It's reasonable to expect he's going to be a top six worthy NHL defenseman by next fall, say. And then Sandine, we already saw, I mean, what glimpses he was showing. I think they're banking on him becoming quite a good NHL defenseman. Is it just too much to think all three of those things could happen? Because when I look at it case by case, I think, you know, I know it's not perfect, but you might have your solution, especially given how cap strapped the team is and what, a, you know, realistically, what the dearth of options are out there on the UFA market, given the the bargain shopping you'd have to do like is there is there any chance that maybe this just kind of re- resolves itself there there's certainly a chance i mean um i think having all three of those things happen is more unlikely than likely i think you know if if sandine or liliagrin are going to become pretty good defenders at this level it's probably not going to happen instantly next year, right? It's going to take some time, especially for Lilligren, who hasn't even had the same experience yet that, that Sandine has. And he took a step, but he's, he's been up and down. So it's just hard to kind of see where he's going to end up here. Um, but, you know, when you sign your big guys to those huge contracts, you kind of made the decision that you're, you're going to be left wanting a little bit on the blue line yeah. uh, for a few years here. So I think you can live with it. And I think you've seen good teams from the recent past, some Stanley cup champions that have not been especially strong on the back end. Um, so I think it's, it's doable. My, my concern, I guess, coming out of that, if, if those are your top six is we all know injuries hit every single year. What's the depth after that? Like if you get yep. two defense injuries, what then like you're back with Martin Marinchin, I guess. And I don't think anybody really wants that. Callie Rosen. I mean, um, who are you really turning to to be an impactful guy when those injuries hit? Miko Letnin, the guy they, they signed from Europe, um, you know, a bit of an unknown, quite a bit of an unknown there uh, as well. So that would be the bigger concern for me is I think all six of those guys, you can feel pretty confidently about can can get by. You know, Riley's a stud, Muzzin's a stud, but but those those younger guys, they can probably last an NHL season to some degree and not be too much of a liability, but... It's the depth after that that would be a real concern for me because I'm not convinced anybody else there is ready for that kind of role yet. Well, that leads to the follow-up question then and the one that probably has been asked the most of the Leafs the past couple of years. Are you trading a forward for a defenseman then? And and which forward? Yeah. It's probably the names we, we hear most often, Kerfoot, Kapanen, or Janssen. They all make between 3 and 3.5. Is that then the the route you have to go to bring some certainty to the back end? Yeah, probably. I mean, I'm not trading Nylander for that. There's no chance that that's something I would do. I think it is probably, it would probably have to be one of those three guys to make it happen. And then, you know, you're left wondering, 
are any of those guys top six forwards? I maybe Janssen, um, maybe Kapanen, but I'm not really sold on that yet. They're they're good players, but I'm not sure they're top six. So, what kind of a defenseman are you really getting back for them? I don't I don't think you can give up them and your first round pick next year because you've already given up your first round pick this year. Um, you know, you've got to hang on to some of these other young players that you have because you're going to need productive, cheap contracts um, coming up still to sustain this team. So if you're looking at a one for one or, or or whatever, what kind of defenseman are you getting back for any of those players? And, and what kind of asset would you need to add on top of them to get back the kind of defenseman this team really needs? I think, I think that's the big question is, is how do you bring those guys in? Because again, if we're talking about third line forwards, you know, you're not getting a solid top four defenseman back for those guys, I don't think. And you're mostly getting depth. You're mostly getting a third pair guy, maybe a pretty good third pair guy. But, you know, I think I don't think it's an easy fix to just say, well, we'll trade Kapanen for a top four because I don't necessarily think that's out there. I didn't really think about how similar the conversation is in Winnipeg till I dove into this, but it's. You know, um, there's a lot of overlap between the situation the Jets are in and the 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 Leafs find themselves in. In that, both teams have a handful of really good forwards and are are quite loaded up front and have a really good goalie, but are hamstrung a bit on the blue line. And you know, Winnipeg's situation kind of. Uh, crept up out of nowhere when last summer all of a sudden you know guys were flying out the door via trade jacob truba via free agency ben Sherrod and tyler myers and then of course you have the dustin bufflin situation i mean it's just such a strange occurrence to have four guys of that caliber leave a team from one year to the next but here we are with winnipeg and and things you know kudos to that team for finding a way to keep it taped together throughout the year and and throughout some uh, some injuries but Dylan DeMello was a nice ad for them at at the trade deadline he showed pretty well through 10 games obviously Neil Pionk I, I think outperformed what certainly all of us oh, yeah. on the outside looking in expected but the question remains what can Winnipeg do to beef up its defense to get it closer to the caliber of the forward core because a, a lot of the other components to be a really, really good team are there right now. And of course, that inevitably leads to a question of, you know, who are the trade candidates there? I won't give up on a PK Subban to Winnipeg trade. And I was looking <laughs> at it and when I first pitched it, I can't remember if it was for a piece on .ca or on the pod. I think it was on the Jack pod. Was it on the pod? Jack Rosovic so, yeah. was the guy that I yes. thought, you know what? This probably makes sense. He would seem to be the kind of player in New Jersey, which, you know, probably safe to assume after this year went off the rails, understands it's going to take a little more time there. You know, would they trade a guy who is now, uh, I think they gave 31 this year, 2020. Um, and, and things obviously didn't go the way he had hoped or the team had hoped in his first year for a, an early 20s a mid-20s player, I guess, in Jack Roslovic, who's kind of blocked. And I got to think, I mean, obviously Matthew Perot has been a name that's linked to trades in Winnipeg because yeah. he's a very useful player that makes uh, a little over $4 million bucks against the cap and you'd be able expensive. to clear out some space. Maybe yep. a little expensive. If you put Roslovic and Perot together, cleared out that space 
now all of a sudden New Jersey doesn't have to eat a ton of Subban's salary, mm-hmm. even if they eat two million a year. He's down to seven million. That's basically what you had earmarked for Dustin Bufflin next year. Um, I don't know. I'm just not convinced that you know. I see a um, a redemption storyline for PK back in a Canadian market, back on a good team, invigorated. He is. I mean, he was. I think a Norris Trophy finalist two years ago. You know, like we're talking about a guy who has been a really good player for a long time. I just, I I refuse to believe that he's completely fallen off a cliff. He only has two more years left on his deal and he's a right shot guy. So um, that is just something that at first I understand might seem like a potential head scratcher, but whether Subban or someone else, the question will be what can Winnipeg do to beef up that blue line? I wish you could figure out a way to get Subban to Toronto because that would just be an incredible thing to see. Sure. Uh, first of all, but also <laughs> big time like, spectacle. Yeah, that would be just well. Yeah. Hey, man, would would you know if you went to New Jersey with Kapanen plus, and New Jersey could? I mean, the lease would have to unload more salary, even if Jersey's going to eat yep. some. But it's not completely unthinkable either, is it? You probably. Well, I wonder. I mean, again, just to make the salary work, you might have to move two of those three forwards that we were talking about sure. to make it work. Because um, again, like I don't think you're going to be moving futures for a guy like PK Subban. That that would be tough. But I, I also bring that up because I, I'm looking at Winnipeg, and yeah, their blue line is not good this year and everything. I wonder if it's better suited to kind of figure itself out than Toronto's is, because. What do you feel really good about on Winnipeg's blue line? Josh Morrissey. Like, he's locked in. You feel very confident about that. I think after this season, you can feel pretty good about Neil Pionk, but you'd like to see him do it again. Um, After that, like, I like Sammy Niku, but I'd like to see him do it a little. You mentioned Dylan DeMello has shown a little something, but you still need to see a little bit more. Um, you know, in the farm system, Dylan Sandberg's coming out of school, yeah. Declan Chisholm. I mean, he scored a ton of points in the OHL, but he was an older player. So it's tough to read too, too much into that, but he did produce, um, you know, Logan Stanley's still a bit of a, a project here. Ville Hainola is going to be here probably next year. Um, and he showed very, very well in the eight or nine games that he played at the start of this year, whatever it was. Um, so there, there are guys coming and Winnipeg has done a, amazing job at developing players that they have drafted mostly forwards but defensemen have come along too so with that kind of history um and knowing that kevin chevaldeaf generally shies away from making any sort of trades let alone big kind of trades like bringing in a guy like suban i just wonder if winnipeg as an organization is you can buy into them more as as more likely to be able to bring along the defensemen that they already have to be to make up a strong six-man unit maybe not next year right away but you know in another year or two and these guys are a little bit older and they all have experience under their belt i wonder i wonder if winnipeg is actually better suited than toronto to figure it out with the players that they've got already well and even tucker pullman established tucker pullman's another one yeah as a you know an nhl this year yeah that's it not all these guys are going to hit but some of them will and you only need some of them to hit and then all of a sudden you've got a really good looking blue line again there's just a lot in that system um so i wonder if they just kind of stay the course you know most players that they have up front now they're important guys 
are signed for a number of years ahead. Patrick Laine yeah. is really the only one who isn't um, of, of, of note. Um, so I think you've got some time here to kind of let that defense grow if that's what you choose to do. And just by looking at Kevin Sheveldev's history, I think he'd probably be more inclined to do that than, than find a quick fix. So you said you basically, my interpretation was, you aren't trading William Nylander in Toronto to solve that problem. And it goes without saying, I assume that, you know, Mitch Marner, Austin Matthews, and John Tavares are in that group. Let me ask you this. Out of the big five for Winnipeg, Kyle Connor, Mark Shifley, Blake Wheeler, Nick Ehlers, Patrick Laine. I mean, Connor, Shifley, Wheeler, for a variety of reasons, I don't see it. Ehlers or Laine, would you think about it? Oh, man, that's a really tough one. I think you'd have to consider it. Um, but I think it would take something that would absolutely blow me out of the water. And I don't even know. I don't even know off the top of my head what it like. You you, you would have to be talking about a really top defenseman to make me move one of those guys. They're so young still. Yeah. And Ehlers, like $6 million signed for another five years after this one. Um, I know his production has been kind of hard to gauge, but his underlying numbers would suggest that it's going to hit for him. And when it hits for him, he's going to be a really good player. You know what line he is. He's, he's a sniper and that's his main trait. That's what he is. Um, and the thing is you've got players on this team that can set him up and, and have him excel in that role. So I wouldn't really want to move on from him. Certainly one wouldn't want to sell him low. You'd want to sell him after he, you know, scores 40 or 50 goals again, you know? Um, and then it would be hard to move on from him when he gets back up to that. Um, so I kind of in the same boat, like I don't think I would trade any of those guys unless I saw something and thought, okay, well, yeah, that makes sense. But I can't off the top of my head, think of what that trade would even look like. They, these guys are too important. It's easier to make up a six man defense in this league, because I don't think you need the stud to make yeah. up a good defense score, but you need the stud to make up a good forward unit. And so it's hard to let those guys go when you get them. All right. Well, we will leave it there for this week. Um, nice to to ask some questions that in some cases we might get answers to in the not too distant future. Hopefully. We'll see yeah, how things Fingers go crossed. as we creep along. Um, we will, of course, be back next week. Before that, you can check out Rory's piece on sportsnet.ca one MVP for every team in the league. Thanks as always to my co-host for joining me today. You can follow him on Twitter at Rory Boylan. Thanks to our producer as always. That is Michael Mares. You can follow Michael on Twitter and I'm going to pull his handle up for you right now at Michael J Mayers. You can follow myself at Dixon on sports Stay safe, everyone, and check back next week for more Glass Rattling Hockey action on Tape to Tape.